This episode is brought to you by DailyDrip.com. DailyDrip makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources when you're trying to learn a new language. What if that hard part was already done for you? Sign up for DailyDrip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Elm? How about Elixir? Maybe you want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday, you'll get a short video or reading delivered to you in your email inbox. The best part is it only takes five minutes a day. We have a special coupon code just for Bike Shed listeners. If you sign up using the coupon code Bike Shed as one word, you'll save $9 on your first month, which means you can try out the Elm topic for free. Don't forget to use the coupon code Bike Shed to show your support for our podcast. Make learning part of your daily routine with dailydrip.com. Thanks to Daily Drip for sponsoring today's show. Before we get started, I feel like we should just address something, and this is a little bit of a, of a polarizing issue, and I know people might be tired of hearing about it, because I'm sure it's just all over their social media uh, feeds, but Westworld. <laughs> uh, um, I was hmm. not expecting that. Um. <laughs> so, I didn't think you were going the obvious location, I just wasn't sure where you were going with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't seen it. Is it good? or? Oh. I'm, out, I'm, I'm out on Westworld, I'm sorry. Does it have something to do with NPM? It has nothing to do with NPM as far as I can tell. I mean, they haven't gotten that far yet. (laughs) Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Hi, Ashley. Hi. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) We're joined today by Ashley Williams, works at NPM. Is that correct? That, That is correct, at least so far. Unless someone okay. hasn't told me something. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you do? What do you do for NPM? Uh, well, that's a bit complicated. Uh, okay. I'm not even certain that I don't even know exactly what my title is anymore. But the way I explain it to people is that my job is to make sure that you understand how NPM works, and then kind of along the way, I can sometimes help NPM make our products something that's easier to explain. So how does NPM work? <laughs> Where would you like me to start? And which part of NPM? <laughs> uh, that's an excellent question and probably not one that can be covered in 40 minutes. You'd be surprised. <laughs> I do think one of the interesting things about NPM is that if you're coming from something like Ruby, NPM is much more than Ruby gems is, right? NPM is a little bit of Ruby gems and a little bit of Bundler and a little bit of Rake and a little bit of... I don't know. What else? Am I missing anything else? Yeah. Um, right. That, I mean, that's actually like a pretty fascinating comparison because of a topic that I assume is going to come up relatively soon in this podcast. <laughs> uh, the, the comparison about whether or not NPM is a bundler, I think, is is what I will uh, I will bracket for us. But yeah, uh, the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that one, NPM is a company, and two, that we have a CLI client, but we also run the registry. So like a lot of people think that the client just pulls from something like GitHub as a registry and that's not the case. In fact, like our largest, most complicated technical product would be the registry. And so we spend a lot of time doing that. Uh, And then we also run the website. So it's kind of like three, I guess, platforms. But yeah, I mean, a cool thing about NPM is that it also includes that scripts element, which allows you some automation. So it's kind of like rake. I'd say we're more like Ruby gems than Bundler, but yeah. again, we can wait on that comparison. <laughs> right, and the and the ability from the CLI client to do things like the like run npm test and just have that, no matter how you have your project configured, run your test suite, is similar to how Ruby projects should be set up, and that you should be able to run rake test and just have it run 
any associated test. So that's like the runner part of it, right? Yeah, exactly. Though with NPM test, you'd have to write how it doesn't just magically work. You have to tell it right. how it works. <laughs> right. I mean, there are some defaults that get configured with like Rails, but that's the same with Rake. Right. Well. Yeah. Rake also has conventions around it. Like it has test task, which it assumes that your tests are individual runnable Ruby files, but has reasonable defaults around it. But I don't think that's like when when most people think of npm, they think of the CLI client they use to install dependencies. Right. I think. Right. right. They and just think npm install. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. And I guess you know you mentioned it earlier. The topic we would probably broach is like there was quite a bit of dust up in the last few weeks because of the introduction of Yarn, uh, which is another client for npm. I think I'm getting this right. I'm getting the terminology right. It's a client to the npm server. So far, so good. <laughs> which does more bundler-like things. Like you had said, the NPM client CLI is not necessarily a bundler, whereas something like Yarn tries to be something, what tries to be bundler. Right. So, I mean, it's both in Yarn's functionality, and honestly, if you think a little bit about its history, uh, the relationship between RubyGems and Bundler is actually kind of similar to the one between Yarn and NPM, except let's take away all of the bad blood that happened between Bundler and uh, RubyGems, which for anyone who was around back in the day knows that that was maybe not the smoothest thing. NPM actually worked uh, with people on the Yarn team to get Yarn written and made. So uh, just to get it out of the way, NPM thinks Yarn is really cool and we really like it and we're happy that it happens. Which might be, not be what everyone expected to hear. <laughs> that isn't that isn't what I expected to hear at all, actually. So that's cool to hear. Like, so if that's the case, was it really like your view or the view of folks who are working on this at npm, other folks who are working on this at npm? Like, was it the view that that was going to be the job of another tool, or was it the view that they wanted to do this but couldn't for backwards compatibility? Or like, how did it come to the point where? NPM was assisting an external tool rather than doing it. So if NPM loves Yarn, why why Yarn and why not something that's like either extended from the NPM CLI or something like that? Uh, and, it, and it's right. a good question. I think one of the first things to note is that the NPM team is extremely small. There are three engineers that are currently devoted to working on the CLI tool. And that's really only two because one of them is a manager. So he spends part of his time doing management stuff and the other part doing engineering. We've also been supporting a lot of node versions and we do a ton of backwards compatibility. The code base is older than NPM as a company. And unfortunately, this year, the NPM CLI team had had to do like a lot of maintenance work uh, to get that code base in a place that they could start expanding it. So it really wasn't in a place to be able to you don't necessarily grow in such a radical way the way the Yarn team really wanted to do it. And if you think for a second, like NPM was originally written by Isaac kind of as like his side project so that he could manage like node dependencies. So this means like writing like JavaScript for the server stuff. And something that I think nobody really could have anticipated is that some of the largest growing populations using NPM are using it for front end development. And if you think about how NPM solves dependency hell, the way it solves dependency hell for node developers is super awesome. But then if you think about having to bundle all that up and then ship it to like a client over a network, you suddenly get into a lot of problems. So we have a bunch of users who really, really want to use NPM. They want to use the wealth of code that's up in the registry, but they're trying to, you know, do it using a tool that isn't really designed 
for their purposes. And so a lot of people were getting frustrated and reasonably so. Like a single tool can't be everything for everyone. Just to clarify, when you say solving dependency hell, you're referring to NPM resolving multiple versions for transitive dependencies? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that, uh, well, I should really say NPM and Node, because as you'll see in a second, it's kind of like a two sides of the same piece of paper uh, relationship there. So let's say with Ruby, when you're trying to resolve dependencies, say module A depends on module B version 2, and module C depends on module B version 3. In Ruby, it's going to get mad at you because you need module B, but it can't have version 2 and version 3. You need to pick one. In Node, basically, you don't have to pick because uh, it does this kind of uh, nesting situation with your, your transitive dependencies most of the time. And so you're it, basically the node module loader is able to hold multiple different versions of a single dependency in memory and not get upset. Now, this is awesome if you kind of have like a ton of server space and you're not going to be like loading all of this up over the network. But that kind of what becomes kind of like bloat can really hurt front end applications. Like you don't want like, you know, four versions of jQuery. They're all different by a patch or something. And so there are definitely ways to kind of like massage and mitigate this using like the Semver ranges that you have. But ultimately, it's not something that's easily solved using the NPM client. And I know it's something that the Yarn client right now is like very interested in, in taking a look at, particularly with the experimental dash dash flat flag that they have um, that I know in, in particular, uh, Yehuda Katz is working on a lot. What does uh, flat do? So the idea is that dash dash flat would, and this is not my work. This is Yehuda's work. I've only spoken with him about it a bit. Uh, but it would employ a constraint solver such that depending on how you uh, cited the Semver range for your dependencies and your dependencies cited that Semver range, it would find the package that would like match the most of them. So instead of just gotcha. getting the latest, which is kind of how the NPM one works, it would try and find the one that would match so it could limit the uh, number of like the same copy of a package that you might have. Constraint solvers, which I've looked into just a little bit, are super fun, but very difficult problems. And, and I'm particularly curious to see, uh, as work gets developed on that, if we're, one, how we'd be able to observe, and then two, if we did observe any changes in how people are declaring like their Semver ranges in their package.jsons. Because I think some of that will have to change. If I recall, Yarn actually wanted to ship with the flat flag as default. But because of how the ecosystem currently exists, it was basically like impossible. So we won't only just see changes in tools, but we'll also need to kind of see some changes in the ecosystem, which I think is really exciting, honestly. So I guess the specific, like the way the ecosystem was using Semver ranges or not using Semver ranges, right? Was that like packages could say like, I just want to use version 1.7.3 of this because I know it works. And they hadn't previously had to think about how like a flattened dependency tree would be impact would impact that. Right. And that's often something that you'll see in like transitive dependencies that are way down at the bottom of your tree, for sure. Uh, I, I think it also has to do with the fact that uh, a lot of people were kind of confused about how to use peer dependencies. So many types of dependencies. Um, so what's a, what's a peer dependency? So a, a peer dependency is a type of dependency that you can declare in your package.json. And basically what it would be is the idea that, say I'm writing an Angular plugin, uh, and I want to write a plugin 
just that, I don't know, does something for Angular. And I want to be able to specify that this plugin works with specific versions of Angular. I would write peer dependencies and then I would list Angular and I would list the version that's required. And this is because you don't want to say that Angular is a dependency of the plugin because when you're building an app, if every single plugin you used in addition to Angular included Angular, you'd have a ton of versions of Angular in there and that doesn't really right. make sense. So it's kind of a way of saying like this plugin like needs to be used with this, but this is not a dependency of it. So it's kind of like an internal versus an external dependency. It's visible to the to the user. Sort of. <laughs> Perhaps like the way I like to think of it is like code that I intend to use in my project is a dependency of me code that I'm relying on existing externally would right. be a peer dependency. And then that's maybe a a simple oversimplification but I think it's a good like start of like the how to make the decision. Well, I, I would take a totally another tact and say, I think the fact that peer dependencies are so hard to define probably suggests that they're a bad abstraction. And mm -hmm. uh, honestly, this is kind of like a tact that many people at NPM have taken. Uh, I think notably Isaac, who has, who has commented quite a bit on this in GitHub. Uh, NPM actually changed the way uh, peer dependencies were handled between NPM 2 and NPM 3. They used to be downloaded automatically on an NPM install, and now they're not. And the tack on them really is that you really shouldn't be using them because basically what you're talking about is you're, you're coupling something to other code that you expect to be there. I see the merits of both sides, but like, I guess if you were going to write a plugin, make the plugin work whether or not that code is there, I guess. And then right. you I don't mean, have to worry about it. It'd be hard to make an Angular dependency. plugin work without Angular, right? I mean, mm. there's definitely ways to do it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah and I think these, these are problems that like, Again, if you're coming from Ruby, I don't know what other languages have package managers like Ruby. Everything is a peer. Rust. Like there are no <laughs> Rust. Does Rust not have? I thought Rust had the ability to have like the same kind of dependency tree that NPM does. Rust works closer to how NPM works than to how Ruby works. Oh yeah, for sure. But in I guess Ruby, I just meant every... that they have a package manager. <laughs> right. What I meant was like in Ruby, everything is a peer. You don't have to worry about that distinction because. Right. Everything gets resolved in the context of everything else that you're asking for as well, um, right. which results in really weird things happening. And if you, uh, it has an opposite, like you, I, I think underestimate how hard that is for some people to understand because I've been doing it for so long. It's just like, oh, of course you can't install version two of this library because it's going to pull in version three of this transitive dependency. But up here of this other library, it depends on version two of that same transitive dependency. And of course, that's not going to work. And it only takes me a few minutes to figure that out and to come up with a solution to it, which is whether that's like, I'm going to patch this library or I'm going to use different dependencies. Well, I was about to say, I don't think it's necessarily super hard for people to understand where the conflict comes from. I think it's a lot harder to come up with a solution because both of the solutions you just listed there aren't terribly awesome. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the solution is there is no solution. Right. Basically. Yeah. Um, the solution in like the Elixir land is sometimes you can do things like override. You can say like override. This would be applicable in situations where like a new version of Rails comes out. The gem you want to use depends on Rails, but hasn't been like updated to officially put that version of Rails in its gem spec. And so you know, oftentimes what you end up having to do is like fork that gem and change the gem spec. If it's something that just works on that new version of Rails and doesn't need any changes, sometimes that's all you need to do. Yeah. Um, in Elixir land, you can say like, I think it's override or force or something like that. We can say like, just use this version. Don't worry about the 
the, hopefully um, everything works. Is that yeah, like the bang important of like package managers? Yeah, yeah I, I, <laughs> I think that's accurate. Yes, fantastic. And, it does, and, it, and like I look at that and I think of like, wow, I wonder how much complexity having that feature causes. I mean, tries to do the resolution, but so one thing that I think is really interesting, like my very, it certainly wasn't my first introduction to dependency hell, but it's kind of where I got solidified was when I was working on Sinatra and having to wrangle depths to work with each other and then also to work with different versions of Ruby that you support, including mm-hmm. things like JRuby and Rubinius. We don't have this in Nodeland, but I remember like at least at one point, the Sinatra like gem file had like several groups that had to be different for all the different types of Ruby. And that that was a huge mess. I was not a fan of that. But. <laughs> I do think the, the comparison with Cargo and Rustland is interesting in examining the trade-offs of like how Ruby handles dependency ma- or how a flat dependency tree works versus how NPM does it. Because Cargo works the same way as NPM in that it, it can resolve multiple versions of dependencies. But then given that it's a type safe language, it solves some of the drawbacks from that in that if you have a type from the same crate but two different versions that's two different types so you couldn't accidentally pass if you have a a library that's working with a transitive dependency of version two and other libraries working with transitive dependency of version three you couldn't accidentally mix those two up i've always found that an interesting trade-off because like it solves some of the problems but on the other hand when something bad happens you get an error message that looks something like expected libcc and got libcc and yeah i guess so i would say that like kind of what you're talking about with those types of collisions at least in my experience happen extremely rarely if right almost not at all like even if your depth tree is like extremely long just based on how the node module loader works. You're not going to like pollute a namespace unless you have some extremely, extremely irresponsible low-level transitive dependencies, which is possible. It's not even polluting namespaces. <laughs> it's more. It's more like if library A produces it, like let's say moment, for example. Yeah, that was the example I was going to give. Oh, um, no. Right. If, if, <laughs> if you're using some library that gives you a moment object from one version, and then you pass that to a, another library that expects a moment object from a later version, and there's some just fundamental change in how moment objects are represented between those two versions, right? That, that, that just blows up. That, is, that yep. is definitely brutal. I mean, I guess the answer there is like, again, it's like that coupling is what you kind of want to avoid. Like in necessarily to run into a problem like that, you would need like something to export a moment object and then something to expect exactly that. And if you do that, then yeah, you, you're definitely going to run into problems. But there are also ways to mitigate that with how you design the interface of your package. Sure. <laughs> I got to use Yarn for the first time couple weeks ago we're working on a project here internally and it's a react native project and i had not run the code in a while and so like i downloaded the code and i ran npm install and i was getting all these weird failures and we like looked at some of the output and we were like well what version of this are you running it was like well my i'm running different dependencies than you are running and i was like okay i'm tired of this problem and i was like ready i was like okay clearly the problem is that i downloaded different dependencies than you i'm so frustrated by this i just want a lock file i'm going to cut us over we're going to cut over to yarn and so we did that, and I was like, look, now we all have the same versions of dependencies, and then I ran my code, and it still failed. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, all right, well, that wasn't the problem, but I do feel better about, like, there's just something satisfying to me of knowing that, like, these are the things we tested against. These are the things that are going to get deployed every time we run yarn install. It's going to install the exact same versions of these libraries on everybody's machine. And so I think, uh, w- would you encourage people to use the yarn client now for, for writing apps? 
So, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, first off, I was going to ask, before you tried yarn, had you tried and or even heard of shrink wrap? Yes. So I didn't try it on this project, but I'd used it in an earlier project. And there were, like, I opened a couple issues about it as well, where it was just like, if you have a team of anything larger than one person, keeping that shrink wrap file up to date is a matter of, like, collective team hygiene. Were you using it on NPM 2 or 3? It was two. Yeah. Is it, does it, is it better on three now? Oh my goodness, yes. So you don't <laughs> need to, this manual updating that you're talking about, like basically in MPM three, they made dash dash save and dash dash save dev also update the shrink wrap file. So yes, like the grievances of using shrink wrap with MPM two were heard loud and clear and were super okay. improved in MPM three. But, okay, maybe I, mean, I should have tried that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, either way, I, I think one of the things that's, that's interesting, like shrink wrap has a couple of problems the team itself will admit that. And I think there's a lot of things that we can do to improve it. But I think one of the biggest problems is discovery. Because it's not a default feature, a lot of people just haven't even heard of it. Um, mm. And then what's interesting about that is that also a lot of people who are coming from JavaScript, who aren't coming from a background of something like Ruby, they don't even know to necessarily want a lock file. So they don't know that shrink wrap exists, and they also wouldn't know how to search for it because it's like a type of a solution that they haven't run into. They feel the problem, but they don't understand the solution. And so I do think that it, it's pretty cool that Yarn has a, a lock file by default. But something that, that happened with the Yarn launch, I think that surprised a lot of people, and there was like a mild outrage about it, was that people didn't understand that when Yarn installed a library, that it wouldn't respect the lock file. It was right. only when you were running it for an application. And like, this is the way I can kind of talk about, well, why the heck does NPM not have a lock file by default? And it's because fundamentally, NPM was about writing and publishing libraries first and foremost. And so now it's suddenly turned into a, a platform where people are writing applications, people are writing front end applications, people are doing lots of things with it. And so when I think about it, like, I think having a lock file, like by default, if you're writing an application is a super brilliant idea. But then if you're writing a library, it doesn't really make all that much sense. So, and, and that was like something that a lot of people in the JavaScript community just simply didn't understand. And I honestly think a lot of people in the Ruby community also don't understand that that's how that works because the tools kind of slide over that detail. <laughs> and even when Bundler first became popular, people who wrote libraries were checking in gemfile.lock into their libraries, which just assured that they never tested their app with updated dependencies that their users might be using. Right. And Yehuda wrote a big thing about it, which got circulated widely for many years and probably still gets circulated fairly I mean, widely. I mean, I know when this up. came up recently with Yarn, I, I pulled it out of the woodwork and started sharing it with people just because right. it was very relevant all over again. And these are lessons that are kind of hard to learn. And the idea of like thinking about the registry as an ecosystem, I think is really, really interesting. I know that in conversations that we've had about like what to do with shrink wrap or if we should have a lock file, should that be default, making sure that we can like maintain like the ecosystem that we have has been really important. Mostly because like by leveraging semantic versioning, that's par part of the reason why the, the NPM ecosystem has been able to grow so huge using the way the node module loader loads packages and can load multiple of them. That's what made has made people so productive, the fact that a lot of those things can work together. And so I think to a certain extent, there are people, depending on their understanding of the lock files, that think that the ecosystem's kind of fluidity could be hurt by that. 
But that's, I think, also due to like a slight misunderstanding that like when you're managing things as dependencies, you just don't use those log files. Right. It is funny just looking at the parallels and you're seeing some of the same parallels appear in the Rust community as well. And it's like every language as they deal with package management just rediscovers the same problems over and over again. So do you think that there have been interesting new things that NPM has brought to the table that like other package managers should learn from? Or do we think that there's like one right way to build a package manager and that we all converge on that eventually? Like how, I don't This I don't is know computers. The there will never be one right way. All right, that's, Good point. I mean, I mean the one right way is have Yehuda build it, right? Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> um, I do think that there's like definitely several things that NPM has done that I think are, are really useful that I think other package managers can learn from. To plug myself for a second, I just recently wrote a blog post about how NPM and the registry deals with readmes. And this is fascinating because currently uh, Rust and crates.io is trying to figure out a way that they can render the readmes of crates on the website. And so something that they were thinking about doing was adding the full text of the readme to the package metadata so that they wouldn't have to, you know, untar the package to like pull out the docs and then be able to render it on the website because that's really heavy. Recently, because of a bunch of people filing some weird bugs uh, on several of our services, people were, were complaining. They're like, my extra long readme is like cut off short. And it turns out that it was cut off right at 64 KB. And uh, that's because we were truncating them because we made the decision to include the full text of the readme in the package metadata. And it turns out that after a while, that actually causes severe performance mm. problems. And it's not a good idea at all. So uh, we're actually in the process of pulling those things out. And I would say, if you look at a lot of our registry architecture, something that we've done extremely well, mostly led by our CTO CJ, uh, is really separating things out into tiny services and therefore being like really robust. So we're separating those out. And I was able to comment on an issue on Crates.io being like, do not put the readmes in the metadata. We learned this was a problem. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> so was that? I, I was actually going to ask because I was I had read that blog article yesterday. Was that the only reason that the readme was included in the metadata was just for the website to be able to use it to render the readmes? Well, no. Um, I mean, I think also at least from npm, like way back in the day, npm used to be exclusively this one thing called a couch app, which like was basically an app that came from using CouchDB. And so everything's just documents. And so it was just one giant document that was all the metadata. And then the tarball was an attachment. And that was chosen because it was easy and Isaac was working on it. And, you know, in the beginning, you're just trying to make it work. And then it turns out that that doesn't scale super well. And hence the explosion and distributing of like all these other services to make it way more robust. So, yeah. Uh, it was definitely not a, a design decision. I don't think it was like deliberate, like, oh, I want to show. There wasn't even a website at first with NPM. So hmm. they, they couldn't have had that reason because the website didn't exist at first. So I'm, I, I'm just then really curious, like then what leads to special casing that one file to be included in the metadata then? I mean, I would assume there was a feature somewhere that was that was reading it that didn't want to untar the package. I think the feature was so you can read... Now I'm trying to think of it. It's it's from the CLI. There's a way that you can like pull up the README, I think, from the, the NPM CLI client. 
I, I don't sense. like reading Markdown in my terminal. Actually, I do. That's a complete lie. That's like all I do all day. <laughs> now I'm just embarrassed. I'll have to like poke around and figure out what it is. But yeah, I imagine it was so that you could read the README from the CLI client. Because that's how the docs originally were. And up until around a year ago, even the online docs had like man page notation. And I finally created a package to to switch that to actually be a link so you could like click on stuff. Um, <laughs> It's my favorite package that I've ever made. It's called Man's Plane. <laughs> For getting your man pages in plain HTML, obviously. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I, I complications of doing it aside, the the fact that I can read the README directly on the NPM website is awesome because when I'm searching for a dependency to use for some project somewhere, all I want to do is like, okay, I got to click into this thing, and then I've got to click on to where it is on GitHub or whatever, and then I've got to read the README there. And having it just like that, that one, eliminating that one step saves me a bunch of tabs that I have to open in my browser. Yeah, uh, definitely. So I think it's awesome. And we're working really hard to make sure that the way we parse the markdown matches the GitHub markdown. As the person <laughs> who manages that package also, let me tell you, GitHub markdown is not based on a standard. And it's very hard to chase. But you should see the way they parse nested lists. It's bananas. Um. Yeah, that was, I mean, that, that, was a, that was a thing a while ago where Jeff Atwood tried to do common markdown or something, right? And John Gruber, who's the person who like wrote markdown the first time, was not really, like, he really likes the idea that there's no markdown standard. And as a software developer, I'm just like, oh, it would be nice if I could just write the same markdown everywhere. I, I literally, I think it was two weeks ago now, wrote something that just will like scrape the generated uh, markup from GitHub and compare it to what the uh, package that we run on the NPM website, just so I can then like just file issues for all the little tiny things that are different because our goal is just for it to be exactly the same. I was, I was going to say, why do you even need to render it on the website? Just curl up to GitHub and grab that element and put that. <laughs> so, just iframe, iframe GitHub's read. There are <laughs> a lot day. of, oh my gosh. I don't know. There are a lot of reasons that we don't use GitHub as a backend at NPM. But one is if they even had like, we DDoS them like constantly. So we yeah. can't do that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a respect thing. So <laughs> we'll just have to keep chasing their markdown standard. Maybe one day I'll get some uh, an army of volunteers to help me document the spec, and we'll gift it back to them. <laughs> yeah, there was there was a package manager. Was it Cocoa Pods or it something? It is Cocoa Pods. I recently Pods that, was writing another blog post. Yeah, where GitHub actually had to make changes in how GitHub works in order to accommodate continued use of Cocoa Pods. Uh, we'll link to the. There was like a pull request, and I think they also sub submitted patches to Cocoa Pods as well. Yeah, they have some pretty, there's also some pretty amazing graphs of like the traffic from CocoaPods alone, like blew like nearly everything else out of the water by quite a bit. Yeah. Oh, is this the please don't use GitHub as a, as a CDN debacle? <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know if that's, I, I, yes, I think that's it. <laughs> no, I, I, just, I just remember cracking up when I was reading through the GitHub response there because one of the things they said was please stop using GitHub as a CDN. Is there something that you're excited about NPM-wise or otherwise that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? So there is one cool thing that could potentially be a transition that I can only say coyly, but... Sure. So our registry team is always looking to make things faster and more reliable. And we recently asked ourselves the question, why are our backend services written in Node? And the answer <laughs> was, because everybody here writes Node. And we're like, is that a good reason? 
And uh, originally, our CTO was playing around with Go, but got frustrated, recently picked up Rust, and we have been in the process of some oxidation. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Exciting. So, do you perhaps need a Postgres uh, data map or object relational mapper or whatever you want to call it, Sean? Uh, because I know I know somebody who makes one. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I I have a couple cool stickers from that. There, there's definitely a chance that we may. Um, yes. I know. <laughs> I mean, I know that our goal is primarily to focus on the really, really performance, like dependent, like heavy computation stuff that we would do. But yeah, I mean, this is still all like very experimental, but it's been kind of fun getting to watch my my worlds collide just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's that's cool. I like that that's happening. I, I just think it's a good sign for like, I don't know, humanity. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> another cool like... thing. Another cool thing is uh, I was I was talking to CJ and she was working on one of the things, and she ran into like kind of a dependency question that she didn't understand, and it's because in your cargo.toml file. When you write like my dependency equals like 4.0.0, there's an implicit like hat there. Yep. And that was extremely unclear to CJ. For what it's worth, it was also extremely unclear to me when I first did it. Um, it looks like I'd you're just setting it like, like that single one. Right. And I wonder if that's not a function of, I know it's obviously wanting to enforce the default of, you know, accept everything except breaking changes. But it's funny that it has to do it kind of implicitly because there's no like, like cargo dash install dash dash save or something like this. So, right. It's just, it's just used to the lock file by default. Right. So I don't know. That was like definitely a weird thing. And when we ran into it, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Steve and I may have bickered a bit about that being a default. That's hard to understand. <laughs> um. for, for what it's worth, I get uh, at least once every two weeks, somebody opens up an issue on diesel or a pull request to diesel trying to change one of our dependencies to have the hat because they don't they don't realize it's the default either. So yeah. I think it's a large portion of the community that's confused by it. I mean, if I ran Rust, I would definitely just put it in crates.io. Because you have that little line on the on the package page where or the crate page, I guess, where you just are supposed to like cut and paste it and drop it in your cargo.toml. And I think if you just had the hat there. Anyways, I don't I'm certain you probably can't make this change now because backwards compatibility <laughs> would be a huge mess. But yeah, I don't know. Right. <laughs> if only you knew somebody who was somewhat responsible for running Rust. <laughs> if only. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I, I just like I like that something as intertwined with Node and JavaScript development in general as NPM looks at itself and says like, well, is this the best way to do this? And like sometimes the answer is no, I'm going to this part will be better for our users and for us if we do it in this other language. And it's OK to do that. We don't have to write everything in JavaScript. Yeah, that's or, a really cool. That's really cool culturally. Yeah, I, it's it's really neat. And I think a lot of people don't know is that there's actually like a lot of different things inside packages that NPM manages and not just JavaScript. I mean, I, the, mm -hmm. I guess you could throw Rust in there. I mean, but there's certainly things with C and there's, a lot of people are doing neat things with CSS too in packages, mm -hmm. which is cool. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, the engineering culture at NPM is, is really fantastic. And I think everybody on the team kind of also has like their own little side thing that they really dig. And we kind of like all bring that to the table, which is, I don't know, I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> Uh, one, one neat thing that we did that might be worth linking out to is at NPM camp, we actually had a panel 
of people who run uh, package managers. So we had Andre, Arco, Steve Klavnik, Sam Giddens, talking about CocoaPods and then Bundler and Cargo, all in kind of the relation. And I, I think that being able to have that conversation actually taught us a lot. And looking to what other package managers are doing is something that like NPM is obviously doing because you can't just teach yourself all of your own lessons. It's it's worth it to learn some lessons from other people. Yeah, that sounds that sounds fascinating. I would definitely that's a that's on available online. Yeah, all of the cool. the NPM camp videos are on YouTube, I think. So I can grab you those links. I will watch that and put it in the show notes. So that's cool. <laughs> awesome. So this episode is probably going to come out the week of Thanksgiving, and I always forget about that. Well, always. This is like the second year of the podcast. So I quickly want to say thank you to our producer, Tom Obarski, who does great work on this show every week and gives us a really awesome sounding podcast. So thanks to him. Thanks to ThoughtBot and to Shopify for giving Sean and I the time to do the show. Uh, thanks to all of our guests like Ashley and other people that have joined us throughout the couple of years we've been doing the show. Uh, thanks to everybody who listens. Anybody else we should thank, Sean? Um, <laughs> I agree. Thank you to all of those people. <laughs> <laughs> and generally, happy Thanksgiving. If, uh, if Thanksgiving is a thing that you celebrate, then happy Thanksgiving. If it's not, thank you anyway. <laughs> what if what if what if you live in Canada and Thanksgiving is a thing? Then that I'm you already. Celebrate, I guess I'm late. Month. Yeah, I guess I'm You're late. Very I'm late. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's, I'm okay. Sorry I'm it's late. okay. It's not real Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ashley, did you have anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't? I guess if you're interested in Node and don't know Node, I run a program called Node Together that you should check out. And if you don't know Rust and you want to learn Rust, I've written a bunch of learning materials for Rust also. So I always like to end things with, if you don't know this stuff, teach yourself. It's super cool and you can do it. <laughs> okay, cool. We'll link to both of those in the show notes as well. Yep. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 89. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this show or any other show, you can tweet us at underscore Bike Shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>